Happy New Year. It is 2023 and the eight black hands are back. We have some hot issues to talk to y'all about tonight. Let's get it. Yo, 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 yo. You when you hear that intro, you know it's it's time to kick it off. <laughs> I think that is the shortest intro in history. <laughs> That's right. We're not playing around. You got about two seconds. You got two seconds and, and you're on. <laughs> Three seconds, Dougie Fresh, you're on. Whatever. Uh, welcome back to the Eight Black Hands, friends and family. We are back for another year. It is 2023. And as always, the world doesn't stop for us just because we took breaks and we took time off to enjoy some time with our family and our friends over the holidays. The world kept going and issues kept coming up. But before we jump in to what we're going to talk about today, let's just check in, fellas. It's the beginning of the year. How are doing that? How y'all doing? This is, listen, it's the beginning of the year. And I'm sure y'all made some resolutions because as everybody does, they're going to be totally new, new and brand new and different in some kind of way. They're going to go to the gym every day. They're going to like, <laughs> you know, they're going to stop smoking. They're going to lose weight. They're going to lift cars. You know, what? Did y'all do any of that this year? Is it is that really a thing? I lifted some for us? cars. Yeah, I mean, that's all. Lifted hey, a couple cars. First, first and first and foremost, <laughs> I want to give I want to give my man Big Reef a shout out. Hey, he went to the gym four times last week. <laughs> oh, I did. I did. First time since football days in college. You know, lifting weights right not really my thing, but I did it. But overall, I don't usually make resolutions though, Chris. I mean, I was going to ask you, all, do y'all like, believe in them? I mean, I just if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it whatever time of the year it is. I don't I don't have this kind of jump off point of like, oh, this is. If I was gonna do it, I'd probably do it in the spring anyway, like kind mm -hmm. of renewal, mm -hmm. flowers blooming. I'm out in the in the dirt, being contemplative. I, I will probably do it if I did it. It would be around then. I have done it around things like births, deaths, things like that, that were mo more monumental than the turning of a calendar page. I wonder if this is different. You know, both of you have, have been principals. Is this different for educators because New Year's is like in the middle of the year and it feels like <laughs> a weird silly. time to make a resolution? Like, I'm going to be a better teacher this year and you're in the middle of the school year. This might be different for educators. Well, every day is good for an educator to restart, renew, improve. So ain't nobody got time for it. <laughs> so those, those two weeks going into a break is... Uh, or you get two weeks over the break and then coming back is, is an amazing time to, to, to reset, right? So if things weren't working, it's a time for you to go into the classroom, uh, talk to students and let them know, hey, this wasn't working and it's because of me. You gotta take ownership. Not taking ownership it ain't gonna work, but uh, these things weren't working and so we're gonna reset in order to activate this part of your learning. And so that's always good to do a reset. Yeah, yeah. You know. Pivots and stuff like that are, are, I mean, anytime good. I mean, breaks are good for that. Weekends are good for that. It could be a good end time of the day. Is good for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it could be a Don't good time that. to leave. You too know. many of those. Too many. Of those. I mean, I, I feel grateful. I did not have a whole lot of that as a as a principal. But I mean, I, I've heard horror stories. You know, people coming back and just like, oh, so and so's not returning. Didn't even say. Didn't even clean out their room. Just was mm -hmm. like never mm -hmm. show. You know, mm -hmm. So, so I've never, I've never had the didn't clean out my room, but I have had the. Uh, you know, a couple of days prior to, you know, I'm not returning over the break. And most of the time when you got people like that, regardless of if you're in a jam, 
Mm. It's usually the best thing for students. If you have someone, so I don't want to pigeonhole myself by saying this, right? Because like, mm. you know, I feel like it goes into that whole high character thing. But you know, if you're leaving kids mid-year, I personally do not believe that you have high character unless there is a, a absolute reason for you to be able to do so, right? I've seen a lot of people on Twitter talking about this educators, not Twitter, more on a, um, TikTok, educators uh, are a little bit toxic on one part Chris of TikTok. Is on Twitter anymore, right? I think he's only on TikTok. No, 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 bro. I'm, I'm on. <laughs> listen, listen. I'm on every platform. I'm even on Tumblr right now. So are you Tumblr yeah, I'm still on Tumblr. Uh, okay. Yeah, and even post news. There's a teacher Twitter stream that is like, let's normalize not making this job a calling anymore. Let's normalize. Uh, you quit when you need to quit if it's mid-year. Wow. Let's normalize uh, self-care, basically, and stop taking on... Self-absorption. Yeah, you know, whatever. And it starts to feel a little bit self-indulgent. Like, yeah, I just walk out on the kids in the middle of the year. Like, I don't feel yeah, bad about that. it. Yeah, let's just yeah. normalize that. I don't feel bad about that. on your whole life. So just let's, let's yeah. us normalize it. Let's take one more dump on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know, what? It's, it's in the frame of we've been treated so badly that you that it's your fault. It's not our fault that we're quitting. Well, like you know, this, you know what they say, which is partially true. You know, well, you know what they say. They say, uh, you know, when teachers leave, necessarily leaving the school, they're leaving principal or the administration. Yeah, that's what Shantae Barnes says. Educator Barnes on Twitter wrote a piece that went over a million, mm -hmm. and I, I think it resonated with so many teachers because she basically wrote that in a piece. Was uh, teachers don't leave schools; they leave principals. And see, I, I would add, so I stuff. would add an adjective there: effective teachers. Yeah, that's true. If they leave their school as their principal, that's there are true. a whole that's lot of folks yeah. who are leaving, not because of how you know. Some of them are leaving for all kind of personal reasons, nothing to do, and some of it just like you know what? I am ineffective. I was not well prepared. Oh, I don't want to be accountable. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't mm -hmm. want someone observing. You know, I mean, I've heard people like, "Why left? Why did you?" Leave? Because they observed me. I don't think anybody should observe. Me. You know, I mean, like just yo. Know, if you if I could care, if I had a penny for every time I heard that. I have 10 cents. I mean, that's crazy. Like, and then at the same, the next time they're drunk somewhere, they're just talking about nobody ever, I never got feedback. Like, yo, you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't want to be observed. I shouldn't be siloed. We shouldn't be, we feel so isolated. But like all of that, like, you know, for me, and I've, I've just been grateful. Like the teachers that I've worked with have been so like just collaborative, effective, and, and like able to give feedback and say, and, and like, you know what, this is what we can do to improve. This is what we're going to do. This is what we need administration to do and all of that. But, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people who don't, who, who want to normalize doing things, you know, to kids. And we see it all the time. I mean, we see it all the time. If we know that racism is inherent in these spaces, mindsets are constricted about our children. We just can't assume like, oh, every time somebody leaves, it's, you know, something that they didn't do, that they're innocent in, in all of Reef, it, you know. Reef, I got a question for you. How hmm. did, you're, how, so what, what I've noticed, right, beyond the formal observation, beyond the informal observation, right, how did peer observations work at your school? Reason why I ask is because if you have a good setup in terms of like peers going in and doing observations of one another, right? Mm -hmm. Giving critical feedback, you know, 
especially those veteran teachers that know exactly what administrators are looking for. That's how you improve your school. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I like peer observations. Uh, I think it's uh, like we never mandated it, you know, but no, it can't that be becomes, you cannot. Yeah. No, I mean, I've seen some people who have mandated, you know, like this is part of their thing. Yeah, but I, I think like part of leadership, you know, we always had instructional coaches and they were also teachers, part time teachers who would also coach. The best part about it, right, was when they would observe each other with had nothing to do with me. It was just more of the culture of improvement. And you know what? Oh, so-and-so, Nadir Suleiman, she's an amazing. She's one of the best teachers in the city. Yep. Hey, can you come observe me? And I'm going to observe you that, you know, that kind of thing. Just the collegiality, the collaboration, and yep. ultimately trying to improve student outcomes as well as our practices. Reeve, you, you know what made me do my first peer observation? Hmm. It was the Baltimore City Public Schools. And when my kids came in, it took me about five minutes in order to kind of round them down and get them ready for learning, right? So one and I was like, what the hell is going on in this period prior to where like I don't think learning is happening. I'm like, right. yeah, what, what is happening with this transition? So I wanted to go and observe that teacher just to see what was going on in the class. Because you know, if you're in your classroom and you're minding your business, then a lot of times you don't really know what's going on in the other classes unless you know you talk to the kids or whatever. But so I went and did peer observation of this teacher, and, and then I realized I'm like, oh, I know why they because they're not learning anything and because nothing's happening in that class prior to. And so what it does is it allows you to have good conversations with your colleagues in terms of like, hey, well, why don't you try this or why did you try that? Because it's what we do. Yeah. Sometimes. That's what some of y'all do. Sometimes. Some of y'all don't do anything. Some of y'all sit in your Listen, I've heard this, so this is what I want to say. I always want to be the, the adversary on this show. So I heard what you two said as what I consider to be two brothers who are good school leaders, right? I can tell you about a school here locally where all the teachers were complaining because the principal sat in her office all day with the door shut and they could never get mm -hmm. her to come out to do anything, right? Oh, mm -hmm. Now I can tell you, in my years of being a school board member, that wasn't a story that was rare. I heard that story often oh, yeah. like, oh, we yeah. barely see her or him. And when we do see her or him, they're on their way out the door with a gang full of keys in their hands, like saying they gotta, you know, jump in your car and go somewhere or whatnot. <laughs> so a, there's like a the range. of Abbott Elementary, the, uh, that principal. Right. Except for not funny, right? Because <laughs> at least on Abbott Elementary, she is funny. I watched that show in three months, man. I've watched it. Actually, it's gotten better. It wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. Not going to go there mm -hmm. now, but I thought mm -hmm. it was going to be a bad situation. It didn't turn out to be as yeah, bad as I it thought. Was fine. It was you fine. know, all your, yeah, all your charter people were, were losing their mind, and so was I. But, you know, listen. Uh, but this, this, do this strikes, what Aaron Rogers says, R-E-L-A-S. I can't hear everybody at once. You, I can you only hear one person. Go back, <laughs> and it's okay to go back and watch it. You can go back and watch it. I'm sure you'll be fine. You'll be fine with it. You'll do all right, I think. Listen, this keys into something that we uh, we have been seeing pop up in terms of professionalism as a as a topic. And there is a article that Ray, I think you were the one who forwarded it to us today. That there was an article that uh, came out. It was about professionalism. It was from Forbes. And in Forbes, it says, legal scholar Leah Goodrich unpacks how professionalism is used as a tool for racism. So see, y'all will make anything racist. I'm just about to say, we're going to talk about this. Y'all will make anything racist at any given time. But anyway, a lot of it is. I mean, uh, I mean a lot of it might be. It's for the culture. I'll drop this in the uh, in the comments for people to see what, what, uh, what article we're talking about. But it's Forbes. It's an article about the scholar, what is her name? Leah Goodrich. She has an essay 
And here's a piece of the essay. It says, this essay examines professionalism as a tool to subjugate people of color in the legal field. Professionalism is a standard with a set of beliefs about how one could should operate in the workplace. While professionalism seemingly applies to everyone, it is used widely to police and regulate people of color in various ways, including hair, tone, and food sense. I have never heard of this one before, food sense. Thus, it is not merely that there is a double standard in how professionalism applies. It is that the standard itself is based on a set of beliefs grounded in racial subordination and white supremacy. Food sense must be like when y'all be bringing pig feet to, to lunch and opening no, them up in the, in, a, in the room. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that must be what y'all are doing. So listen. In the meeting uh, room, let, eating chitlins, making the, the odors all over the place. Even, yeah, I can, bro, I can, stop with the I can see people in uh, what schools you work well, at. Let me just stop. Where? <laughs> let me just stop with y'all and start right away with the... Do you agree or disagree with the premise here? The premise is that professionalism is based on a set of standards that are linked directly to white supremacy. So holding people to this same set seems like it's universal, but it's not universal. So there are some links. There's some credence to this argument, right? And so the example that I will use is black women's hair. Like black Around women should that. go in, you should go in, wear your hair natural, wear, wear your hair, however the hell you want to wear your hair, because your hair is not a symbol of how you're going to perform on the job, right? And we've seen several instances of folks not being able to be employed because they have dreads or because, you know, the white people don't like how their hair look, right? Or it's not pressed or it's not permed or it's not how other, how society thinks that it should look in order for, you know, in, in order for it to, to resemble beauty in other people's eyes. Fuck that. Black women, y'all wear y'all hair however y'all want. But you think that's, that, that's a racist situation? If it's just black <laughs> hair, Yes. Of course it is. No, no. I mean, well, listen, let me ask you this. Can a white woman wear a mohawk to a bank job? Yes. No, she can. Yes, she can. No, she can. You never in your life seen a punk rock bank teller. Bro, that's probably because she's out playing music because she has a choice to, to do whatever the hell she wants to do. She doesn't have to be regulated to go into work into the bank. When you walk into a bank, you see all them crazy asymmetrical uh, Karen haircuts. Bro, I can't deal with that, the background, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, what is going on? <laughs> Bro, you know who that is. You know who that is. You're late for sound check. <laughs> Anyways, I guess the, the only point that I'm trying to make, is, and it's, it's a point of, you know, general adversarial, just to push back. You don't think that there's also professionalism standards if somebody was a punk rocker? And wanted to work in one of these jobs, or I mean, but you go into the extreme, and that, that you know what I mean, like normal, natural hair of black women is that's not the same as shaving your hair, dyeing it, blah blah blah. You know what I mean? Like that's just coming with if it's not straightened. You know, there were people that would not be able to get certain jobs. Well, listen, a few years ago, I was told that black men couldn't wear like beard and things yes. like that's like yeah. a, a niece yeah. a, a recent where more it's. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm sure there there's some black men who like who prefer to shave. I'm just saying, like, if, if there was, I do think that there's a a particular stand, same way as standard of beauty. Like, no, this is the only thing that's beautiful. Nothing else counts. And your proximity to this white standard is how you're going to be judged in all places, including job spaces. No, that's that is that is born and part and parcel of, of a racist construct. Absolutely, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely. Is it racist or is it classist? 
Bro, I think it's racist. Crazy. You can be wealthy and still they say like, no, you can't wear you can't wear locks. You can't do this. You can't wear natural, you know, fro as a sister. Like, no, nah, like, come on. That's not the same as punk rock. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we're like, this is the natural normal, not like the I don't know how they would term punk rock in white culture, but it's probably it's not the the, uh, you know, what they call you know what? it. The main so, st- it's not mainstream because y'all don't know white people. See, I live in a very I live in a very white place. So and I'm going to start so looking at bank tellers so, to see them. I, I believe I could probably find somebody with shade, maybe not a radical. See, you see, you do let me plug this real quick. Bank with Green Greenwood, bro. I don't uh, random. It's not random. <laughs> he just said he was going into a bank. I yeah. said bank with Greenwood. That's not random. Well, anyways, my point in saying this is just to say <laughs> if y'all know what a mullet is, you know, mm-hmm. this is it's why I'm asking in the back, right? Hey, business in the front, party in the back, right? That's what they call it. So it's kind of short up here, but it's long <laughs> in the back, right? Like this is this is why I'm saying. Party is this a classist thing? Because there's a set of white folks that have different things going on that also are not welcome to the professional party. Like I just I made bet you, you could find a mullet in in a professional. You probably somewhere. you probably could find maybe a not mullet now. Somewhere. I'm talking about when I it was could. in. So white folks do something to their white underclass that we do to our black underclass. They and I don't think we see it because we don't see life through their eyes. I'm they right. have a classist set of people. That they don't want to interact with in their own race too, right? Um, I mean, geez. I just, just, I mean, there's a certain way in which these folks can show up when, when you take all, take us out of it. When yeah. it's just white people, yeah. there's ways in which they don't let some of themselves in the room too, right? Bro, I think, I think, you know, I think how, uh, how, how the white middle class, how the white upper and middle class look at rural white folks. I think that that's what you're leading to. I think that's what you're talking. If that's what you're talking about, then yeah, you're absolutely right. Because bro, they treat them like they treat them one step above us. Yeah, <laughs> and in some cases, they might want us more. But anyways, so because this show is so often about education, you know, and this is why I'm, you know, I'm taking up the Bill Cosby line here. I'm just channeling him this week. Well, only in one way. I just want just I just want to be clear. The old Cosby, the old Cosby, uh, not the new the Cosby. Yeah, yeah, not the, the new, not the new Cosby. It's only to say this: like I spent years helping people find jobs, and I worked on welfare to work programs. When I was working in those programs, the goal really was to get you employed. So when we would be thinking about how to help you practice before you go to the interview, because people are nervous, they're nervous before they go sit before these folks. They always don't have the right thing to wear. They don't know what questions are going to be asked. They're getting tripped up or whatnot. So it was our job to actually kind of game the system to basically say, listen, interviewing for a job is a, is a game. It's, it's all just a game, right? Like, and, and we're going to help you game the system. So we got to know what the rules are. We got to know what people respond to or don't respond to. We got to just like play the thing for however we got to play it if the goal is for you to become employed, right? So when that's your job, like that's your goal. Your goal is to help people get jobs. And you know that certain things are going to get them X'd out of the box. Now apply that to education. We could teach our kids that professionalism is racist or whatnot. It might be even true, but I just don't know how much, how helpful that's going to be for you. There's still certain things that you got to do in order to be able to. There's, certain, there's, there's still certain things that you got to be able to do in order to navigate the system, in order to land. Yeah in an upward in an upright position right so like they're still they're still like so for example i've heard people make the argument of about time like oh that's a white uh, being late is a white supremacy construct no it's mm-hmm. not 
this is my point. This is my point. So, like, so, so, so to, to, to that aspect that's, of your that's point, wacky wokeness. <laughs> wacky wokeness. The clock is racist. <laughs> that sun setting. Damn it, you're racist, son. The, the sun is racist. Yeah, it came up this racist. morning. Yeah, at the same time, we could actually predict it. That's ridiculous. I, I mean, so Sharif, you were shaking your head, no. Like in the yeah, point I, that I'm making, and I'm listen, I'm not sticking hard on this point. I know, I'm just you're saying being a I'm contrarian. To, like, well, no, no, I'm also trying to be practical because, like I said, it really was my job to help people get jobs. Yes. And a lot of them weren't getting jobs. Like, so we had to figure out how we help prepare people. No, like, and, people I, and I and I get that. I, I think helping people navigate systems, but I, I but also at the same time would say, like, it's a racist system, and hey, we're gonna help you navigate. I wouldn't say like it's not racist. Let me help you navigate mm-hmm. this professionalism. I'm like, hey, it's not set up for you. It's set up by someone else's standard orientation and belittling of you and what you look like and what you sound like. Now, let's win the game, right? And I, I'll give you a perfect example. We had one time we combined our summer school with another school. It was it was more efficient and cost effective to do so. So we combined two schools. One of the other school leaders, uh, the visiting school, was a white guy who was like, tatted color tats all you know like all over the place the big you know he was in talking about punk rock he was like he was in that type of just space that was an alternate type of lifestyle it wasn't like the mainstream educator lifestyle and my students saw him and they saw he had like a position of authority and they're like man you could be a, a you know a school leader and and be tatted like that da, da, da. i was like let me tell you something he might be able to but don't assume that mm-hmm. you might be able to. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. like, you and, and listen, this is your body, this is your world, but no, come in with your eyes wide open. You might not get hired as an assistant principal or a teacher coach with tats on your face as a black person where this, oh, your face. Where this white man clearly was able to do so. Mm-hmm. Right. And I gave them, I gave him the real, like, hey, he was able to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean that this same school and district would do that for you. That's all I'm gonna say. Reef. Right, a face. We uh, and then at the same time, Chris, like our t- all of our tenth graders would take an internship as a class, so they would actually mm-hmm, go mm-hmm. and have to compete for internships. And the first half of the year, and this was an uh, wasn't elective, but it was like a, a two day a course, twice a week course. So the first half of the year, they learned resume building, how to interview, how to you know how to greet the interview, how to predict the questions, what question to come in. Like it was an actual class. We were helping them navigate how to, like, listen, I was telling somebody the other day, this is like one of the few times I couldn't help students. I would love to help my students. Interview time, they would show up with these little, these pieces of cloth and like, hey, can you show me how to tie a tie? And I'm like, no, I've never actually learned how to do that, but I can help you with all the other aspects of you going into this, uh, this job, but I couldn't help them tie a tie. But they would go in and a lot of them would want to wear tie and suit and shoes and all that kind of stuff. And these are 10th graders. Yeah, I think we could do a better job. I think this denouncing professionalism and these things as racist actually cuts the wrong direction. I think it's bad. I like it's the a term, right? Like, yeah, there is it, something that's professional. And because I've given people feedback like that's unprofessional. Right. And so when we say the term professional and anything, because then there may be people put ascribe anything that's under the term professionalism as raised. I'm like, nah, there are certain aspects of being labeled or marginalized, but not the term, not just this like being a professional. No, some of that's the title, though. Right. When the comms kind of like title getting people to like what? Right. But I think it's important to kind of have those conversations prior to. 
right? Mm-hmm. So that everybody mm-hmm. can be aligned, everybody can be on the same page in terms of like what exactly professionalism is, and so that as a staff, mm-hmm. you guys can unpack that. So that, you know, if anything comes up, like, hey, I'll give you a perfect example for us, right? In teaching, right? And 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 I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, I had a tweet that kind of went viral when I talked about wearing tights to work, right? And, mm-hmm. and so- You were advocating because you wanted to wear those or you were saying- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Reef, I, was, I was advocating because I wanted to wear them. And so, so in, in, my, in my advocating to want to wear tights to work, <laughs> some female leaders uh in our school that were like nah we're not doing that right but then they took over the conversation so that no no male really had to like broach that in order to have conversations with folks about what should be worn or what shouldn't be worn or whatever so it was good to have leaders step up and us not have to have that uncomfortable conversation because then it goes into like you're you're a male and you're policing women's bodies and i don't even want to even no tight i think we've gone too far we've gone too far is cursing okay, person, Chris? What's that? Is cussing in a professional setting? Is that unprofessional? I see. This is this is what I I feel like. If you work at a bar, or if you work at a church, or if you work at a a daycare center or whatnot, you're gonna mm-hmm. have to know what's appropriate for where you're that's at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like where you're at. If you're working, if you're walking around, I mean, if you're working in a daycare with a bunch of babies and kids and whatnot, it's probably gonna be different than if you work that night at a bar. And you do something, you know, in in that job setting. So judgment is important here, like good judgment. Like, do you wear do you wear pajama bottoms to the grocery store, right? Do you show up to a a meeting, a business meeting on Zoom with a bonnet on, right? See, these are things. These are questions that could get me in trouble. Get uh, y'all y'all not even gonna answer. But I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay with some degree of classism because there's just some things I don't want to see. I don't want to see a flight attendant look like she just rolled out of bed. And I don't want to see a bank teller look like he's about to rob me. And and I don't want to go to a daycare and have people cussing. Yeah, I don't want to see that in Walmart or yeah. Home Depot. Bruh, or, and don't and you just said the word or like Walmart. Go in Walmart. Yeah, we don't talk listen. about Walmart on this show. I mean, listen, I love me some Walmart and Target and whatnot, but there are differences in life. And we can't say it. We can't say it. We're not supposed to say it. We're not supposed to go there. But I'm just saying there's a difference between what some people do for their own children in terms of teaching them manners and how to navigate the world and how to win the game and how to be appropriate for circumstances. And then there's another set of people that make a lot of money just on creating new language and essays and studies that make us dumber by calling everything racist as if they themselves, with doctor at the end of their name, didn't pass through a few gates to get where they're getting to. Knock it right? Off. But maybe they get there saying that these gates are inappropriate. Listen, what I'll what I yeah, say Yeah, they're saying is, this gate that I just got through is terrible. Like Clarence Thomas. Uh, affirmative <laughs> action is horrible. Uh, I benefited from it. I totally benefited from a whole, you know, you listen, bro, you made it. That's not fair. Bro, that's the same thing. That's the same concept. It worked for me. It ain't gonna work for y'all. I played all by the rules. I had manners. And, you know, listen, she names a few things in here. It's like the the smell of food, I think, is an interesting one, right? Because that cuts across ethnicities. Like, you know, like if you've ever worked in a workplace that has a lunchroom, I don't know when the last time y'all worked in a place where people are bringing stuff from home and heating it up in the in the microwave. This is a real issue. This is a real. I mean, this is in a cafeteria. Let me tell you. I mean, this, this is one thing in an office space oh, as opposed to a cafeteria. It's some aroma that comes with food. <laughs> some right? aromas. And t- when she said tone, there's another thing too about how loud. That's what I wanted to get into. Are and could be loud and yeah, but that's usually accredited to and some of that's subjective too. 
that's usually, but that and as you like, mm. that's when you start talking about loudness, mm. you start, start talking about tone, and then you start mm-hmm. talking about aggression. That's all about perception. That's all about how you perceive a person, right? So like, that's racist, bro. So like, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. like if I, if I'm having a conversation with you and like our voices elevate or whatever, but like it's still endearing and we still know that there's love for one another, or whatever. But then somebody on the outside looking in is like, oh, well, they were yelling at each other, right? Like. That's racist, and that's you not understanding the culture of the people that you work with. Yeah, listen, I, I mean, and, and back mm. to that profanity, like, I've seen superintendents who cuss, like, sailors in professional settings. No black woman's going to be, you know gonna be able to do something, something like that, right? You like, know, those, huh? you know there's, there's, there's studies that support that there's a, a higher level intellect that comes from people that curse more than people that don't. Yeah, mm. some of y'all I are geniuses. I don't buy that. <laughs> a lot of it is, and if I ask you to replace that word with something that's that's longer than a, a two syllable one, then they wouldn't be able to do it. So I don't know about that intelligence study. Probably the same study they tell people to get drunk and it's good for your heart. Well, now, me, now they going back and saying that that is not quite accurate. That's a cup of wine, sir. Let me ask you two this question, right? Mm-hmm. So, Chris, you just made a, a very good point, but you made it towards like the, I guess, the elitism that happens in the academy. But let's take it one step further because you did say people with a lot of money. Bro, exactly. you have these rappers out here that be rapping about subjects or whatever that uh, of things that's going to get you clicks, things that's going to like rapping about lives that are not theirs or whatever because a lot of them live in the suburbs and you know are not living in poverty and their kids are in college, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, they're telling you to go hit the block and, and drink this and smoke that and do this mm-hmm. and that and forth, mm-hmm. right? What's y'all thoughts on that? Because I, I know you know, you were leaning towards more love and music. <laughs> I mean, listen, you know, I was talking to somebody about Atlanta and the rappers in Atlanta who came up through a, a bad school system. And actually, now you have something. You uh, succeeded in the rap game. And now you have something right in life. Now, you're still that kid that grew up in Atlanta that went through a bad school system. But then you get married and you put your kids in a, a private school. They all got their kids in the same private school in Atlanta. Right. So Babyface's kids went through this school and CeeLo's kids went through this school. But then the rappers put sent, you know, the, the street rappers, the real kind of like gangster rappers got they got kids in that school, too. So they know enough to put their kids where they're going to get social training for the world that they didn't get themselves. Listen, we could keep going on and on about this. This is the battle I think we're always going to fight. Wanting to keep it real on one hand, you know, normalize everything that we do in our culture as a cultural thing and as good and never get around to asking the question of, do we ever do any bad stuff in our culture that shouldn't be part of, that shouldn't be normalized? Terrible. Do we, or is there anything that we're like, we're, we're, we're just letting slide by just because we want to pull the, well, the whole world is racist thing. Listen, the world is racist. Yeah. And you, some of y'all are knuckleheads. Two things can be true. The world can be racist and some of y'all could be like on some real dumb, you Listen, know what? I let Reef have it every day. There is not a day that I don't get his work to Reef about what's happening in Philly and these kids and it being damn near a genocide amongst youth in Philadelphia. And so, you know, as we were talking about the center and uh, and BMAC 2023, can't wait whenever we get a date. But anyways, <laughs> he, just, he, he always just got to sneak he, one he in. Just, yeah, he just he, he can't help himself. He's like, so so I'm I'm nervous for port cities, right? And when I say port cities, I mean meaning the cities that are quote unquote urban esque, black led, usually democratic. Not things don't happen in in uh, in red states, but y'all get what I'm saying here. The crime is astronomical, right? But then when you start talking about the crime. 
then you got to start talking about the root issues and like root, root cause analysis or whatever. But at the end of the day, even after root cause analysis, you still got hundreds of people that are dying by murder, dying by guns every year. And it's taboo for us to talk about it. Why? Mm-hmm. Lots of stuff is taboo because, you know, first of all, it would be coming out of a place. I want to say part of this is the classism. It's not racism. Like within our own culture, just like in the other cultures, there's an upper middle class and middle class that have upper middle class and middle class concerns and and norms and habits and ways of being. And we have that within, if you take white people out of the mix and take white world out of the mix, we have that within black culture. Like within, we have this kind of middle class versus the underclass situation. No, we have middle class, working class and underclass differences. I think, in values and expectations and norms. Mm-hmm. And it's our middle class that occupies a lot of the professional positions. So we can talk all this kind of like the world's racist stuff, but if we took white people out of it, our black middle class that are college educated and degreed and run the banks, run the schools, run the different things, they bring with them some expectations and manners too that aren't just necessarily about race. It's a lot about class, right? You all have heard me make this point before. A lot of our kids... And our teachers are an economic mismatch, even in school districts where almost everybody's black, right? Like in urban school districts where you got a large black white or a large black workforce does not necessarily mean that those kids are right. There are a lot of them are college educated, middle class teaching kids who aren't and who aren't on track to be. And there's a mismatch even in in the way that they see the world in terms of manners and expectations. And I don't know what point I'm making there except to say that there's a deeper conversation here to be had, but I don't think teaching our kids that professionalism is racist is specific enough about which parts. (laughs) I want you to go to college. I want you to get a job. I want you to pass interviews. I want you, when you, once you have a job to keep it, I don't want people conspiring against you in the workplace. I don't want you offering them any type of fuel to help them sabotage you. You're professional career because you don't know which fork to use i mean there's just things like in life you know what i'm doing i mean with my face you'll need all of that yeah, yeah see this is why this, mm, to be, mm. to be the utent, like like be kind to the dishwasher and the planet you know what right. i mean like you'll mm. need all that <laughs> yeah, see y'all need to stop now Same <laughs> fork. Might... we'll do the, we'll do the job <laughs> <laughs> Use that way to this. Listen, I I think it's complicated. I think some of it, yes. Helping students, I think this part of education, helping students navigate is part of education. And you talk about two truths at the same time, and it's a racist structure. And some of the black folks who are in those middle classes, some of them have drunken the, the, uh, they're drunk off of the, the racist stuff too. So imagine like, yes, it's some of the middle class stuff. And, and we're just talking about black community removing mm-hmm. that. But it's it's hard to totally remove it if the black people are still using some of those same paradigms and constructs. Right. So mm-hmm. even if I'm middle class where, you know, all of us are blacks in this building, but I'm using racist constructs to now project you low expectation, blah, blah, blah. And all the, all the things. That's why mindset is so important. Right. Because with a mindset that's healthy then you're going to be able to navigate and be able to tell students like, yes, here's what it is. And you have choices, right? Like be able to say you're little, belittle them, you're less than, you're ignorant because of X, Y, Z. Like, hey, here's what the game plan is. Here's what it looks like. And you have a choice of how to show up because we can't, we also have to acknowledge like there's plenty of studies that show that the white boy without the education, without this dressing all crazy still might likely get the job just because your name is Raheem and his name is Tom. Y'all right? ever like, play? Y'all ever play a sport? in a game where you felt like the ref was on the other team side. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Did you stop playing or did you change no. your plays or did you no, no, like you not play harder. as hard? You played harder, right? Yeah. Like when you when you had one of those refs where you're like, oh yeah, the ref is in their pocket. Yeah. The ref is in their pocket. You didn't be like, well, the whole game is bullshit. <laughs> so I'm just gonna, you know, no. Some people do though. Some people yeah. do, but they also like would look at they start looking for vulnerabilities, they start looking for what their plays are gonna be, what right. their strategy is gonna be, how they're gonna play the game, how right. they're gonna get to the end zone, that the whole com- thing. The, com- right. the, the conversation is the strategy. Yeah. The yeah, conversation strategies change, right? So like yeah. when you know that something like that is happening, then your whole game plan changes. So all like- right. Well, I got one for y'all. This one comes from Raymond, by the way, and me, and also. But talk about professionalism and, and language and blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about classroom management. Well, I like to see you come up here and do one of these problems. What the fuck I'm talking to you in this job so I come knock them off with glasses off your face and that's on my dick on my head. Didn't, my I, tell you, didn't I tell you earlier today, I said, what the fuck I'm talking Markel, I said, I do not. I said I do not talk to you that way, and I would appreciate it if you did not talk Shut to me. Shut the fuck up talking to me! I do not curse at you. Have I ever cursed at you? Yes. Have I, I have never yes. cursed at you. Yes, you have. I, you know that's not true. I bet I could put on some problems that you don't even know, Mr. Johnson. You probably could. Come on, put some problems on the board. Fuck that. I tell you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Give you fuck enough. you. Fuck you. All that. Get away from your computer. Shut the fuck up. Take the coat off. That's why you don't know how to do the problem. Take the coat off. Take the coat off. Take the coat off. Take the coat off. Now I don't want to keep going with this, but this is a realistic situation. Right. This, this happens in schools every day. This is this happens in schools yeah. every day. We could talk all the like peaches and cream we want to talk about. We could talk about forming relationships. We could talk about bonding. We could talk about like uh, being authentic and real and bringing hip hop into classrooms. And we could talk about dancing and shuffling and doing whatever, doing secret handshakes with your kids before they come in through the door. We talk about a lot of things. And what I know for a fact is there's lots of educators that listen to us and others when they hear that they're doing two things in their brain. They're like, it's cool to listen to y'all and everything. You're also not realistic. You're not in my classroom specifically. It sounds all good what y'all got going on or what you did or whatnot, but you're not being realistic about what is going on in my situation. Now, I look at that clip that we just saw and I've got like 80 different angles to take that on, right? Ray, when you posted this, you posted around trauma and you posted around knowing what's behind the behavior and knowing more, like thinking deeper about these situations than the reactionary. Yeah, that, that, that wasn't where I was. That wasn't always where I was at. It took growth for me in terms of me to get there. Right. So like initially, like, so if you, when I first started teaching in 2003, had I had, had I encountered that interaction is totally different from how I would have been teaching in 2023. Right. Well, you, you probably would have burned out because the brother that came in, oh. the second brother that came in, was going to pull the, he was going to be the tougher guy, right, yeah. of the ones or whatnot. And I'm not going to go on with the clip, but, you know, the, he gets treated the same way throughout the, like, he, he's oh, no, not I'm coming gonna, in being, he's not coming in being Joe Clark or something. Like, in, he's, in, he's 2020, in 2003, I would have flipped the fuck out and I probably would have gotten fired because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have accepted that type of behavior from a child to me. But then not just took, one, like uh, multiple but, kids but in again, classroom. Again, yeah. it took a whole lot of growth from me in order to kind of understand that that's a kid crying out and that's a kid that's asking or seeking help. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so there's a couple of things that happened in that clip that I think we need to unpack. Right. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, when he cursed the teacher out and he was like, I put that on my dead grandma. 
right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when he put it on his dead grandma, that made me know that there was somebody in his life that he loved, mm-hmm. right? That meant something to him, right? And so then as I started thinking about that, I'm like, well, damn, the grandma can't be too much older than the teacher, right? If she's younger or whatever, like, then we need to know what happened to the grandma. So there's a whole lot of layers and there was a whole lot of pain that was expressed by that young gent, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so but here's the thing, though, Chris, and this is where I bring in the black church. I had that pain, but I had so much respect based off of how I was brought up and how I was taught to engage with folks that I would have never, ever, I would have never expressed myself in that manner due to the fact mm-hmm. that that was a black man and that was an elder, right? So like disconnect between what's happening with today's youth and what's happening with what's happening in our community. And until we, as a black community, us on this podcast, folks that are listening to us, peel back the layers to determine when this disconnect happened and how we can kind of mend that fracture, we're going to keep getting this. So both of you, well, I know you for sure, Sharif, and I think to some extent you too, Ray, have had experience with turnarounds. Yeah. So let's say this is what you're turning around. Like you come to a school, this is the prevailing culture of a school. This is the prevailing classroom situation. The educators that you just saw, that's what they look like and that's what they sound like or whatnot. What's the turnaround strategy here? And it's so much, man. I mean, every time, that's the second time seeing it. And each time I'm like, it hurts my insides to, to see that kind of stuff. And this is just a realistic situation. It's like Ray said, this is occurring. You know, and I, I think the one time that the first time I saw this clip, it was, you know, somebody had tagged it. This is why we need black men teachers. And I'm just like, this is not <laughs> why we need yeah. black men teachers. Yeah. I'm like, no, this yeah. is not. I was like, there's such a, and, and a couple of things. I'm going to be a little critical of the two brothers who are in there. This is also why professional development and stuff is so important. Mm, this mm-hmm. is why, like, as far as like, there's a technical skill to working with a kid, like, I, and I'm making a lot of assumptions. I'm going to assume that is a, a, a classroom for students that needed emotional and behavioral support. That's one. And, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, but I'm, I'm making assumptions just from watching, listening, trying to understand what the math problem was, yeah. you know, so that's one thing. And the, the fact that it was looking at it, there was a low expectation, like, you know what, this is okay. And we're going to manage it within this room in some kind of way. Like, no, like the, the number one about turning around the school, you turn around, you, what you're doing is turn around a series of classrooms, whether it's a hallway, it's a learning environment. Classroom is a learning environment. School is a learning environment. The expectation is, we don't bang like that in here. So I'm not going to listen to a bunch of 10 and 11-year-olds or 18-year-olds sitting there dropping the F-bomb in my classroom, and I'm going to continue to have a conversation as if we're just watching them move, like everything's chill. Like, no. Like, what are you going like, to do, though? What are you going to do, though? So th- this is the thing. Like, so if you, have that type of, if you have that type of turnaround, one, you're setting – the first thing I'm doing is I'm going back over the expectation. One, you have to set the expectation. Here's where the bar is. Here's how – what a learning environment and community is. And here's what I'm going to deliver, and here's yeah. what I'm expecting you to. We are part of the community. So the first thing is setting the bar and the expectation and not wavering it. You could do that with love. But the expectation, the expectation of me just looking at that is like, this ain't the first day using the F-bomb and cussing everybody out. And it's more or less like it's negotiable. No, this is one of the non-negotiables. We will not do that in here. Right. And so the first thing I would have but been then doing what happens, is going though? back to. Where do you go, though? There, there are multiple things. Like one, the brother came in. That means, listen, this young man is coming out of the classroom. 
And there may be a conversation. Again, it's the technical, you know what? technical this is, part of it, right? Like, and this isn't to push back on you. Social worker. I don't know. I'm yeah, this saying, is not to push back on you, Sean. I mean, let's but say, this I mean, Chris, is what, before you go in, this, I just want to say, when people, when those people who listen and say like, oh, this ain't my classroom, I've been in your classroom. I, I, I didn't teach in North Dakota. I taught in West Philly. All three of my schools are in West Philly. No, but this, the point, this is the point that I want to make. It's possible that this classroom is the classroom of last resort, meaning you do pull these students out of other classrooms, but they do all end up together somewhere. Did you hear so, anything so, about consequences or expectations? I did not, but this is what I'll say. I, so it's a good point, but I will say this much. When I see multiple kids that have the same type of pattern like this, like these two kids had or whatnot, and they're exhibiting the same behavior or whatnot. Sometimes it might be an out of control classroom. Sometimes though, this might be the place where you put everybody once you've that's, taken said, them out I of the other classroom. The emotional, that's why I started yeah. with that. I said it may yeah. be the most, I had emotional class, emotional support classrooms in my school. Like we had multiple sometimes. And sometimes we also had alternate placement. We're students who are just like, you know what, this is not the, the most conducive environment. You need a higher level of support. And so then we're working with the family and saying, like, here's the higher level of support that this child needs. Right. Because this is again, it goes back. But again, and I don't want to assume that they had IEPs or anything like that. What I'm just saying, like there are mm-hmm. there are ways to speak. But I'm just saying, like, at the end of the day, I did not see high expectations projected in the language, in the thing, like the one, the one brother showed up, you know, a little bit after the clip cut off, like you're going to jail. Like, I mean, come on. Like this, like even for him, what are the expectations? Is that the expectation you're going to come in, support this classroom by threatening that kid to go to jail for what? Cause what did he do? Right? Like, but how you know what? That, there's, there is the no, whole thing is problematic. Not just the kid. There's the no adults consequence. We're not though. equipped. There's no, the adults were not equipped because the adults don't have any consequence that can matter. What do you, what do you, what? You gotta at least have expectations. I mean, like, you can expect all you want. You can expect all you want. If a kid is dropping an F bomb and you can't do anything, you can't pull them out. You can't whoop their ass. You can't call their mama because their mama don't care. Why do you, why do you need to whoop their (laughs) Chris, first of all, first of all, let's, we need to do a show on this because whipping their ass. Yeah. The jails are full of kids who got their asses whipped. It does not work. If it worked, why are they in jail? Why were they in jail? I used to ask them when I, when I would interview people who were locked up. I would ask them, "Where are you beat?" They're like, "Yeah, I was beat all the time. I was beat with this. I was beat yeah. with that." They were still. That's not the y'all not thing. realistic. Y'all not realistic. Oh, listen, hey. I'm so realistic because we've seen it. We actually had realistic. emotional. I wish I would have had somebody from our team who actually worked yeah. with students with the deep emotional support, so they they could have been on the show to actually talk about what they've done to change. And again, things aren't like overnight. But what I'm saying is like. You got to at least, be, he didn't even reference like, hey, what are our classroom expectations? What about that is inappropriate? And it wasn't everybody. There were two kids. Bro, listen, two. let me tell you something. I, I don't, I don't, Let's I don't just know. assume there were 10. I don't right? know. I don't know where this camera came from. Right. That, that, that's the first thing. I don't, I don't know where the camera came from. And the reason what why I'm talking about that's one of the kids. Oh, one of the kids. Yeah. yeah. Bystander. And, okay. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is because. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, when you catch kids like that, they ain't lying about something. So if a kid say that you did something, then more than likely you did something or you did something close to it, right? And so when he was like, "Yo, did I curse at you?" and the kid was like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah," like he said it, like it was so I knee jerk. It was I so knee- it, was, it was so knee jerk. I was, you know, it, it, it kind of made me believe that. Maybe it kind of made me think the same. It, it, it did. Maybe, maybe he did say that. something. Maybe he he had no business yeah. saying. But what you I will what? say is this: I know, I know where I would have been at that night. If that had happened in my class, I know I would have been eating dinner at somebody's house 
and we would have been having a conversation with somebody's parent. I don't give a shit what time they got off of work. If it was at 10 o'clock, I was going to be there and we was going to have a conversation about what occurred in my classroom and it wasn't going to occur again. And that's the thing. That's the thing, Reef. It's like, how many of these people are just accepting that, going home, having their self-care and then coming back the next day to the same kind of abuse? Or are you being proactive? Are you making phone calls to parents? Are you getting people on the phone? Are you getting people that, that love this kid and explaining to them this is exactly what occurred, right? Because a lot of times you got folks that are not even making these phone calls. And so when a kid goes home, kid tells his side of the story, you know, parents believe whatever the kid says or whatever, and there's no checking in. There's no relationship between the teachers in the school, uh, the teachers in school and the parents, right? Yeah. So there's no way to triangulate what's happening in these classrooms. But me... I'm this is up. what I would say. Both of you are parents and both of you are educators. I'm a parent, but I've never ran a school. I've never ran a classroom. I've never had 30 kids in a classroom where I've had to manage not just teaching them, but also manage how things work, the flow of things like the culture, whatnot. So it feels a little bit like a magician thing. Like you got to be juggling multiple things at once. Not only do you have to teach well. That's why they deserve your... all the respect when they're so effective. And the when pay. they're effective. Yeah. Add that part. When they're effective. When they're not effective, they deserve what they get. This is my point in saying that as a father and a person on the outside, there are certain things you wouldn't have done as a child, not because of what the educators were doing in the classroom, but because you came from a world of expectations outside of that, that were more deadly than the ones in that classroom, right? Now, I know I was laughing and I was joking. I wasn't meaning that the teachers should whoop the kid's ass, right? Yes, like, y'all took, y'all take this stuff too <laughs> seriously. Y'all take yes, this too, y'all take it too hey, literal. Hey, he, hey, he, I am he, just saying, hey, there is- been happening in Louisiana and hey, that's gonna and be- And I don't support, I don't support that at all. I don't support any of that. And honestly, I'm using it as comedic effect. But mm. I will say this though, when you come from a, a home set of expectations, the school set of expectations is secondary, which is why when a teacher says, do you want me to call home? You straighten up, right? In a lot of cases, right? When you take that away as an option, like call my mama, I don't care. My mama come down here and cut you. Well, okay, then let's just make this a prophecy then. That's just what's going to happen for you. I already can call what your life is going to be, right? I'm not saying that I want it to be that way. I'm just saying it is what it is. Let's unpack that. What do you mean what that life is going to be like? What, what, what are you saying here? I am saying that there is a scientific ability to predict mm -hmm. where people are going to end up in life based on different markers and factors that are going on with them in their life. If you are a scientist and it was your job to predict and you looked at certain behaviors or certain things that people do or whatnot, you'd be very good at predicting where they're going to end up in life or whatnot, which is why the rich do one thing to try and, and give their kids every advantage and put them on every kind of track for every type of thing for as early as kindergarten or before. And why everybody else is in a rat race to try and figure out what those enablers are for success. And then there are some kids that are completely naked to the system. They like have none of the enablers going on or whatnot. When I see a classroom like this, I feel like you guys would have a different answer than I would have. Y'all would have a different answer than I would because you've run schools, you've run classrooms, you're going to have to figure it out. But I look at that that dude trying to teach that class and I'm looking at him, seeing on his face like silent resignation. He died on the inside already. He knows he's not going to get anything successful out of this classroom. You can look at him and just see. He's like, he's dead on the inside. I don't know how y'all feel, but it feels to me like he knows what the score is. I think a clip like that, it's hard to... It's hard to kind of gather what somebody's thoughts are or whatever. You know, like we don't know what kind of day he was having. We don't know what kind of we don't know 
the extraneous factors <laughs> that, that, that were occurring in this classroom, right? So, like, I, I want to be on the positive end of this. I want to make, I want to. You don't think you know what that man was thinking to himself? <laughs> I mean, the, the one thing I, w- I would say about it, you know, I, I do agree, like, it's hard to see. Brother was saying, I went to college for this. Resigned. That's what he's saying. <laughs> I mean, at some point, yeah, he made very well. But I, I think the other piece is, what I also want to recognize is like how he, for the most part, he maintained his composure, right? Like he didn't, because we've yeah. seen other videos where they're cussing right back at the kid and all that kind of stuff, right? You know, and so I would say that's for one, but I would also say like, there's probably a level, you know, develop professional development that has not been had in that, um, in that environment. And I, I think the resignation that I saw that like being resigned to something was around like, this is the normal that we are subjecting other students to that we're subjecting the learning and culture of the environment because quite frankly yes i agree with you all the things about the parent and i've also had as a school in all three schools that i was in we also had families that we knew we couldn't get the level of partnership that mm-hmm. we wanted the kid deserved even that the parent would have wanted to in there if they were in their best state you know it still didn't mean that we were going to lower the bar for what we expected in the learning environment I you know, will say, um, shove, like we are in this space, you're agreeing to send your child here and there's going to be a bar. And, and again, it doesn't mean that it's going to be like, there's going to be no profanity or nothing is ever going to happen. Wrong. Like, no, it doesn't mean that going to happen. Right. But it so Michelle Johnson still have a bar that you're pointing to and refocusing everybody. And there's a consequence. I want to get Michelle Johnson in here. I love her quote. She says, she uh, says. kids who have parents is, who have parents with low expectations can be educated high, at high levels. Many kids want a different life trajectory. They need a path. I love that. Our good friend Tanae Hamilton is checking in from the motherland. And if y'all have, yes, if you've been watching her, you you can see on her Facebook, she's been chronicling her time in the motherland and it looks just beautiful and amazing. And she's still checking in on the Eight Black Hands show. We got a sister Elaine Wells, a sister Mama Toya, sister Jamoke. Everybody is in tonight. If y'all see this, please share the show, share it with friends and families and, and push it out there. And it is good to see you. We have been watching all the comments and trying to get them up on the screen. I feel like I'm losing tonight. I'm losing the battle because I mean, I'm, I'm, it, I'm, I'm, I mean, but I'm, you're I'm, making I'm, a lot of good points, you know, Chris. I, you know? I think I think it's just being because I had emotional support classrooms and because I had to turn around two schools with a team. You know, I and I agree with what Ray said. Like, you know, um, and I and I told y'all this. Ooh, before. Wait, what? You agree with what Ray uh, said? Right, Damn, right, we yeah, got to mark this in history. He had wow, a sentence okay. in there that I agreed with. You know what okay. I mean? About like, you know, just where where was the pain of that child coming from? And part of like our learning and development as educators, we have to understand and be able to unpack that. And again, this is January now. We're talking about these are things that it should be occurring in the summer all professional development year round, all those kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I wasn't in a, a school that did not have students that needed emotional and behavioral health support, right? And I and I remember the first time, my first turnaround school, when I talked to the students and I had them in the auditorium and they, and I said, listen, this is going to be one of the best middle schools in the city. And they cracked up like an auditorium full of middle school kids laugh, El Mackey, oh, what are you talking about? Where'd you come from? Blah, blah, blah. Like if they couldn't even fathom Mm-hmm. that a school could be turned around, that they went in. And they, some of them told me after, like, my mom told me, like, how this school was when she was little, blah, 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 all those kind of things. But we still came back to, like, listen, I love you, and you deserve better. Like, making sure they also understand, like, the learning environment that they deserve, the learning that they deserve, what they their aspirations, all of that is part of how do you, like, really nurture a culture 
but you can't let a culture just be assaulted nonstop with 10 F-bombs. And again, it doesn't mean an emotional, any class that it, it doesn't happen. But the fact that it wasn't, there was no kind of redirection around that. And the biggest thing, not called saying F you, but it was about your coat. Like to me, though, these are things where, where it goes back to training and development of adult. You're coming, your biggest thing is that young boy got a coat on? And he just said, F you, F you. And like, I'm just like, yo, this is now normal for that classroom. That, that's the sign to me. That's normal in the classroom. And the most important thing is that you you don't have your coat on. Like, hey, that's, to hey, me, that's hey, nuts. Hey, that's you nuts. can say F me. You can say F me all you want, but just do it with your coat off. Yeah, yeah. That, have your coat right. off when well, you say it. Yeah, we'll have it. Okay. Have, you know, like, come on, man. So, this is, um, I'm just like, talk about professional. Y'all are apologists. About professionalism. That's for, you know, unprofessional uh, education right there, bro. You're that's not crazy. wearing your jacket. You're not wearing your coat in here. Oh, that's racist. <laughs> No, have you? Anyways, listen. No, no, so, so this, I, I want to say for the record, I want to say for the record, this one came yeah. from Ray. This was Ray's video. <laughs> so I just want to say for the record, like this isn't me, the Bayesian on the show. It's not the Bayesian on the show pulling up these things and whatnot. This one was was Ray, and I think professionalism was Ray. was Ray too. But you're not off the hook, Sharif, because this week Sharif sent me oh, this yes. mess here. Woo. Why black boy Dr. sneakers Moss. should matter. To educators, written by a principal. Can I get through this intro, please? No, because I need to talk about your rebuttal. (laughs) We will come to it. All right. Dr. Felton Moss, or Felton Moss, I don't know if he's a doctor or whatnot, principal wrote this article. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for the ASCD, very esteemed uh, professional outlet for, for people that have a background in running schools or leading schools. So they're not talking from a perspective of not knowing. These are in trained and uh, esteemed people. So he wrote this thing around black boy sneakers should matter to educators. And the setup for the piece is basically that he had an experience in his life, uh, sneakers with a young man with sneakers that kind of changed him after he had the experience. Basically, uh, here's the, here's the, the thread. He took too little time to care about what to what what the sneakers meant to the student and he actually replicated some things that educators do when they're taking away the humanity of young black boys in schools and he uses uh, Dr. Patina Love's work uh, on abolitionist teaching as part of his reason why he thinks we should really get down to the 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 valid cultural expressions of young people as a way of us like accessing them and having a more authentic relationship with them and not doing everything we just said in this show, like just going after the surface stuff or whatnot, trying to think deeper about what these things mean to the, to young people. And I just, I mean, I agreed with most of what he said. The one thing that I thought was odd was the very first sentence, which I always think we are putting the wrong things in contest with each other. He says, after decades of reform initiatives from No Child Left Behind Act to the Every Student Succeeds Act, challenges persist for Black boys in their quest for academic freedom and success. Countless studies still conclude that being Black and male in America's schools is a problem. Many black boys are dehumanized before they ever enter the classroom because of deeply entrenched stereotypes and biases. And my only problem with the framing of this is it's all true what he just said, but I don't understand why it has to be in contest with major federal legislation like No Child Left Behind and Every Student Succeed Acts, which put pressure on schools to do better for the very students that he's talking about. So it feels like a dodge. If we could just handle the cultural stuff, we don't have to worry about the outcome stuff. We don't have to worry about the other stuff. 
he could have wrote this whole piece, this whole thing, and not made it about the school reform stuff at all. That's just me talking. And y'all know that I wrote a rebuttal piece to this. But anyways, Sharif, tell me what your takeaway, like, did I get it wrong? Like, the thing I pulled out of this, like, what were you seeing in this that was positive as you, as you read through it? Yeah, no, and, and I agree with uh, most of what Dr. Moss has in there as well. And I, I do think I agree with, yes, there are, there's harm with a lot of the federal policy because it's so far removed from like what's happening in classrooms and schools. They were like unfunded mandates and all these type of things. So yes, I agree with certain aspects of it. And I think there's also just a, you know, we have to, I agree with you, we have to be careful about that because there are a lot of like, I, you know, I'm, I have to work with people who some of them are like, we shouldn't even test kids at all. And they're not even recognizing mm-hmm. that, you know, how harmful mm-hmm. that would be for black children in a majority white institution, not just who's leading the classroom, but who's who's leading schools, who's leading uh, districts, who's making curricular decisions, who's on the school boards, who are the superintendents, all of that, right? Like to me, that's you know, absolutely crazy. I think what's interesting also is just, you know, and I, I love Dr. Moss, you know, I think we're all different as educators. Like for me, as an educator, the kid, you know, my thing would have been like, you know what, being on time is more important than anything and to me. And I would share this. I'm like, hey, you know what, to me, that's more important. And if you want to make sure that there are no creases in your shoes, what do you have to do? Let's back map this. What do you have to do to get from class point A to point B to be on time, right? To me, it's all about strategy and navigating and choices because the kid may be late and it's just like, all right, what's the consequence that, that you may get and what's the reward you may get, you know, even if it's your own sense of fulfillment. So that would have been my approach about, you know, cause that kids was just like, hey, well, I'm gonna be late. This is like, all right, well, what can you do about your choices so that you are on time? Mm-hmm. Do you not talk to your friends as long so you can get to class on time? Do you get organized? Do you decide which when to go to your locker? There's so many things that I think I would have dove into that would have been to be honest. And the kids would have known like shoes like that ain't my thing. And it wasn't my hook. And I agree mm-hmm. with him that that finding ways to find a hook. Some of some of my ways of engaging kids was because they knew I was the exact opposite of, of what they uh, had, you know, whether it was music or whether it was their shoes. And that was the part of, that's where we built the relationship. Like, you know, it's like a sports team. Their favorite team is this. My favorite team is that. I'm not going to build my relationship with you because now I'm going to love your team too. Like, no, I still yeah. like my team. My team is better. And we're going to talk about it. And this is how we developed our relationship. So everybody has a different way. But I think a lot of well, what Ray, you put in there is critical. Ray, important. you more of a sneakerhead. So Sharif just mentioned, like, so Sharif and me have a different relationship to sneakers. I didn't do a very good job in the setup to say the exchange that he had with the young person was the young person was being late to class because he didn't want to walk too fast because he didn't want to put creases in his Air Force Ones. So he was doing that that. duck walk. He was doing that duck walk thing that people do with their Air Force Ones because they want to put a crease in it. The piece that I wrote was like, the piece I wrote was very Bill Cosby and that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it's going on (laughs) in my own house. But like we didn't bought crease protectors. Well, my wife told me that we, we that? bought crease protect <laughs> bruh. Literally, you can that? buy these things. You can buy these uh-huh. things to put into these damn tennis shoes to stop them from getting a crease on top. So you spend extra money. First of all, you just spent too much money on these sweatshop shoes that have been manufactured in sweatshops by eight-year-olds in another country who ain't got no food. And they're selling them. They're $8 a pair. They're selling them to you for 120 to 150 to 200 and more. And then you wearing these stupid shoes and you still got to go to Amazon 
and buy some some protectors. So when, so when they take them off, they put so. something in. No, no, no. Well, they put something in them so that they, when they walk, they don't bend their foot like that. And oh, that while they they're wearing it, it goes in there while they're wearing it. Bro, this is it gets dumber and dumber. The more we explain it, it gets it gets dumber and dumber and dumber, right? This is get off my lawn right here. Right? It is get off my lawn. Get off my lawn with your your damn Holocaust shoes in one case. Holocaust shoes and bro. See, this is where I sound old. And I wrote this piece in response of like and you okay. I might sound old, but this is what I and I even referenced Bill Cosby in the piece, which was a little bit problematic, but I just listen. All I was saying was, I get trying to understand kids and their culture, but associating sneaker culture, a billion dollar industry that has been forced on them to make them consumers of one of the dumbest products ever with the least kind of financial upswing on it ever. So and and conf conflating that as their culture, like the motherland, like someone in the motherland invented sneakers or some dumb shit like that is like the most, it's the most capitalistic dumb thing I've ever heard in my life. And people get killed over this. They die over this stuff. No. They don't get an education over this shit, right? Bro, stop it. So I just want to correct the record. Right? Correct me. Correct me. Resell on shoes is a very lucrative business, right? So like before, I would hear people say, "Oh, you waste, you spend a hundred dollars on those shoes, and you know you're not getting nothing out of it, or whatever, whatever." And that was a valid argument then, but now you got websites like StockX and like all these other resell things, and then you got folks that are limiting re releases and like doing all these other things. So Sneakers is now a lucrative business. <laughs> and so before, you know, you hear people say, "Oh, you ain't got no, you got these new Jordans, but you ain't got no life insurance." Hey, Jordans is your life insurance now, baby. They got you got some 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 J ones that you can sell for like ten thousand dollars. I could pay for a funeral. I'm just saying. But oh, in the doctor in the doctor Moss, Doctor Felton Moss's uh article, he said something that resonated for me. He said, "Uh, for many black boys, sneakers are statements that define their personality and character." and speak to their self-worth and self-respect. And so that was interesting to me because we have a uniform policy at our school and we used to only allow black sneakers, right? And so my dean of students, who's a former Division One basketball player, came to me and he was like, bro, you know, we're both sneakerheads and these kids use sneakers as an outlet to be able to express themselves. So how do you feel about allowing kids to wear whatever sneakers they want to wear? And I was like, oh, we went to this uniform policy because of the fact that, you know, we don't want kids to feel like we don't want kids to feel away. Like if some kid is able to afford Jordans and some kid is able to afford Payless, even though Payless is out of business now, you can see the differences in, in terms of like, you know, income and, and like all those other things and whatnot. And so then the focus is no longer on education. The focus is on all kinds of things that are outlying issues that are not education. But what I will say is this, you have like vans and like very affordable Converse and like all these other things because sneakers are different now. It used to be you had to have a pair of $120, $150 sneakers in order for you to be the cool kid. Now it's no longer that way. You could have a $25 pair of vans and people still think you're cool and like all these other things. When It's just different now. In the comments, Michelle Johnson wrote that this seems like to be like a privileged thing, like a thing that happens amongst the privileged. It's interesting that many in the privileged and especially the up, the middle class and upper class are untagging themselves, meaning they're going with things like vans and more downstream things as kind of a way to show that they are, you know, nondescript when it comes to these things. And as always, the people that have the least often are, are, are investing <laughs> so in, true. 
are investing in the culture. I mean, listen, Dr. Umar does this whole thing on don't do that on black I, people I are the biggest. I don't know if he. I don't know if he, de know if he defended a dissertation. There's some. There's some conversation that's happening amongst the black elite in, in the academy, Stop and it. so it has, anyways, Dr. Umar. I'm still gonna make this point. Dr. Umar says that basically black folks are the biggest purchasers of Mercedes Benz, for instance. That's not just right? Dr. Umar. That's just that's fact. I know, but he he runs down a whole list of them where black folks are. And it's because there's a history to it. There's a video that I think I showed on this show once called Selling the Negro. And it's actually, it was an old instructional video on how you sell to black people. And it was, it was basically telling corporate America, you're missing out on a big market here. And what it said was they like symbols and signs of success because they've had so little of it that you can sell them anything. You can sell them Westinghouse. You can sell them certain types of appliances and blah, blah, because they're so thirsty to look like they're part of the mainstream and part of the upper class or whatnot, that you can sell them on brands is basically what it says. You can just sell them on brands. And Dr. Umar kind of repeats some of that too. When I think about the sneaker thing, right? Like there was a point at which people were at literally getting killed for Jordans, right? Like, like, and, and Nike was raking in the dollars, raking in the doughs. Shaq came along at some point. Shaq was like, I'm going to put out a pair of affordable shoes, right? You remember this, right? Oh. I was talking about Kmart. Right. I'm not going to do the Jordan thing. I'm going to sell them somewhere else. I had so much respect for that. Now, I'm not saying anybody was running to try and get them plastic shoes out of Kmart. <laughs> he made a grip. He, he did make a lot of money out of them, though. And I respected him for saying, I'm not going to put something on the feet of kids that's going to get them killed from corporate America. Right. We have this conversation a lot of times. I get it. I don't think that sneakers are like organically grown out of black culture. I believe like a lot of things we can fashion anything into something cool for the world. We could take the scraps off of a pig and make it worth eating. We can take the, the little chump change that you throw off of your food table and, and make a whole cuisine out of it that has the whole world set on fire by it. That's unhealthy for a lot of people. But I'm not saying, I'm not going to say it's our culture. I would disagree. And the reason why I would, would disagree, you? yeah, I would disagree okay. because of this, right? So Nike is what? 1970s, early 80s when there was some popularity. Nike really didn't boom and transform until... Those uh those air forces came out that preceded the Jordans. So I think this is around 1983. They put out some forces and they moved from being a runner's shoe to being to moving into into basketball, right? And so we we know that that Jordan. And if you look at the documentary, uh, there was there was he could have either went with Adidas or he could have went with Jordan. I mean, he could have went with Nike, right? He ended up going with Nike, even though Adidas was get, trying to give him a whole shitload more money. But uh, he went. He went with, with, with man. That dude's a billionaire now, and like, and you got LeBron, who's who's now a billionaire, and like, so this has become like the culture. This is this is a cultural thing right here, man. It's not just. Well, this is a who name me name me a white person that has a sneaker or a sneaker named after them or a sneaker on a major like Adidas, Reebok, Nike, that has become a billionaire because of that sneaker. Name me a billion dollar sneaker making manufacturing company that sells its stock on the New York exchange that is black. Don't tell me about the people they hire to put their names on things so that they can sell stuff to us. Fair so that they can sell Fair the enough. Negro. Like, like, listen, I'm glad you, LeBron got his bag for putting his name on something. He don't own Nike. He don't own Adidas. He don't own Converse. He don't own any of them. And go and look at the New York stock exchange of who owns what. And who's making the money? They have found a way to sell us us constantly, 
right? And we are sucking it down like Jim Jones Kool-Aid all over the place, pretending like we don't live in a consumerist capitalist society that is reselling us constantly because they slap some Negro's name on it. And then we tell our kids this is what it's all about to the point where they value that more they, than they value getting the class on time, where they value that more than they value actually owning the company, not consuming from the company, right? We are producing consumers. We're not pr producing producers. Hey, listen, right? The people I, who ask the real questions like I could play for the NFL or the N NBA, but when do I get to own the NFL and the NBA? I could make a record for Warner Brothers, but when do I get to own Warner Brothers? Right. I could buy Stefan Marbury's shoe or whoever's shoe or whatnot. When do I get to own Nike? Right. No, well, Steph, well, Steph's shoe, uh, Steph's shoe is a little bit different. Right. Because like he it's did cheaper. Right. He did the end way. He did the, the indie joint. He went the indie route. And so, you know, his, his shoes was like maybe $20, but he made like $18 off the shoe. Cause again, you know, it. it was, it was like, it was like $2 to make the shoe and then, you know, the, the markup or whatever. But like, he was smart in terms, in terms of using his popularity in, in order to do exactly what you just said. So there's some people that think outside of the box. I know Kyrie is, uh, is, is working with a black designer now since, uh, since him and Nike both, uh, you know, with, I love it. Making they, his own, right. Yeah, making his own now. And then, but so, so I, and I wanted to say something to you, right? Because you know, we like nice things, right? Reef don't. We do like nice things. Yeah. Uh, and, like. so, and so I had a choice. I was like, I yo, like Reef nice likes nice things I too. Like nice book. Either, either I was going to get a, I was <laughs> going to get a, a, a Telfar bag. And I decided to go with the Telfar bag because, you know, it's, it's black owned. I wanted to do that. Well, listen, Sharif does like nice things as, as much like as he nice likes. Things. He no, tries it. He, he likes nice things. Uh, Elaine Wells has a comment here and I'm going to leave this alone. But, uh, you know, actually, I bring this up because I think there's a mismatch of the values of what we're teaching our kids versus like like you can teach them to be consumers or you can teach them to be producers. You can uh, treat teach them to make the thing or and take the dollars off the table, or you can teach them to continuously be the Ponzi's, a major play that's being played on all of us. I'm not saying any of us are out of this. And I'm not saying my own family, my own kids, right? Like I, this piece that I wrote about this this week in response to this was I never had a pair of these $100 plus shoes until I was 50 years old. Like I didn't grow up with it. Yeah, like, hey, I just saw you in a, in a mortgage statement. Bro, listen, I'm telling you for my entire <laughs> life, if I told you what the most I ever paid for a pair of shoes was yeah. all the way until my fifties, it would probably trip you out. Right. Like, cause, because this was just so normalized for some people, like hundred dollar plus shoes for a lot of people was just a normal thing. Hey, do you, right? do you find yourself so, so. overcompensating and treating yourself real nice based off of what you had to go through growing up? I do. I still <laughs> will, will look at a thing and be like, woo. I mean, it'd be something I could totally afford and I'll look at it and go, woo, that's too rich for my blood. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, especially when it comes to shoes, like, like, so I've just now given myself permission. Like, you know why I'm giving myself more permission now with shoes is because I'm old and, you know, creaks and you start creaking and stuff like that. You like life is too short for bad shoes, yeah. you know, like cheap shoes sometimes cause you more problems than, than, than good. Uh, but my point is with the youth and with the young people, are we always teaching them the right lesson? Now, Michelle Johnson just pulled one way oh, out. She said British Knights. Oh, my God. I forgot about British. Brit when British Knights was. What's that? Oh, bro. That, that, that was the thing for a minute. But I wanted to get this. Yeah, Elaine Wells quote. yeah I want to get her quote in here because this is something that totally makes the point for me and drives me absolutely crazy. This is one of my, my spots. She said, truth, Chris, 
See, that's it. That's, that's it right there. She oh, said, truth. Yeah. No, 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 no. Let me say the resume before. She said, it's the same with companies and designers now trying to make Islamic headwear to exactly. and sell it to Muslim right. women when they not too long ago, they didn't want us even wearing them. Right. And that's also the thing. If you if you study hair, if you just study where the hair comes from and what the black hair market looks like and who controls it and who is X'd out of it completely, there are black hair selling shops that can't get in the Korean hair car uh, cartel, hair cartel, even though we are the main destination for the global trade of hair. You have black hair providers or black hair care companies or whatnot that can't get in the cartels to get first dibs on the money and the profits or whatnot. And we're the only ones really actually funding that entire industry of things. You have had black hair shops close because they, they've been blackballed by the, um, they did something wrong or they raised the price or they did something the wrong way and whatnot. This is my point. Stop selling us us. Stop selling us us and stop selling us down the river. And they will continue doing it as long as we continue participating in it. I think we should teach the youth some financial defense strategies that we're not teaching them right now. That's my only point. And the mass consumerism, starting with sneakers, I think is one one crime. It's a criminal example. Now, you don't have to agree with me because Ray's still going to go buy his that. Holocaust shoes tomorrow. Yeah, listen, I mean, I've never had, you know, a lot of the sneakers that they talk about, you know, the bag he's just mentioned. I, I've heard it to me, but where did I learn that from? A Black Hands. I, before that, I never heard of this stuff. You know what I mean? So I think, and I think it's interesting that sometimes, you know, a particular style of a particular clothing, like a sneaker becomes, oh, that's part of the culture when, you know, I, when I think of culture, I think of things that are just a lot deeper than that. What I think is part of our culture is, as you mentioned, Chris, like being able to just style something, to be able to create something, to make something hip or fly. Or I think that's part of the culture. It doesn't necessarily mean that a, the sneaker has become you know, super popular, but that has more to do with capitalism than black culture. Black culture, I think, is they can, as you described, you can touch things and you have such a creativity in your being, in your orientation, that you can add this, you know, just this level of creativity and and popularize uh, things that are touched, right? Like, it's like, you know, it's the like almost a Midas touch, except the gold always goes to somebody else. <laughs> so we exactly. got like a different type of Midas touch. Like everything we touch oh. turns to gold, but it's someone else's gold. Like that's the problem. Right. You know, that to me is, you know, just looking at it. And, you know, I've, I've, I don't have like expensive sneakers. Now it wasn't part of our, you know, our, our thing. And so looking at it is just like, you know what? We we are the we had the Midas touch, unfortunately. And this is why. And as we this end the, here, I know we got to wrap up with final thoughts. This is what I say, like bringing this all together. This is why we need black schools. This is why we need our own schools. This is why we need black educational capital. Because as states are starting to outlaw what can be taught and what can be said in schools and in classrooms, we need the freedom to be able to teach our kids that when it comes to diamonds and minerals and things that are used for cell phones and everything that we have, Africa is not a poor country. I mean, not a poor continent. Af Africa is the richest continent on planet Earth, and there should not be any poverty there. And every day, there are young Black children who are digging through rocks and mines and dirt and whatnot to pull up things to go somewhere else for somebody else's benefit. And for us, for the Negro system of the United States to actually be participant in the consumerism that is actually in oppressing the entire world could be a lesson. 
That could be a high school lesson. You could do a whole thing on that. You could do a whole series on that. You could start teaching black kids from eight years on that uh, that this is the way a system works. This is where the mines are. This is where the diamonds come from. This is where the minerals that you know power your cell phone come from. This is how you are participating in a system that is actually, if you know, if we want to talk about get old school about it and talk about pan-Africanism, this is actually what you are doing to contribute to to there being a first, second, and third world uh, in on this planet or whatnot. You can't teach that in every place anymore. There are states you can't even, you literally couldn't teach that. You would have to teach that in a private school or you'd have to teach yeah. that in a school where you have complete control over the curriculum. And out um, of school and out of school time. After school and out of school, Saturdays, time. absolutely, summer, own absolutely. It. We have to own that space and uh, absolutely in those areas. All right, last final thoughts, brothers, so we can round this show out today. We talked about professionalism and whether or not it is racism. Uh, we talked about uh, classroom management and what we should do when classrooms are completely out of control. We have young people that are exhibiting lots of uh, trauma and um, whether or not those schools can be turned around and those classrooms can be turned around simply by setting high expectations. And then we rounded out and ended this uh, talk around like, you know, the educators ideas about how we can access authentic conversation and authentic relationships with young people versus the Cliff Huxtable way of looking at the world, which is, y'all, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Sneakers, blah, blah, blah. You know, the Theo, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Right. Back on so. this year. <laughs> Anyway, so who wants to go first? Round out final yeah. thoughts for the night. So yeah, I mean, no, this is a good show. I mean, definitely a lot of uh, a lot of topics that touch us in in so many different ways. I you know I, I think at the end of the day, all this is about like strategy and you know and technique and, and how do we implement those strategies? Uh, how do we implement strategies to turn around classrooms? How do we ensure that our, our students are you know understand the the context that they that they are operating in and make decisions? So what to fight, choosing their battles, what battles, you know, sometimes it's a strategy, hey, get in and then do your damage, you know, and sometimes it's like, hey, you know, I don't even want to go in because that's, you know, as Ray says, that's not good for my mental well-being and, and you know, those type of things. So I think all of it is making sure like, and it's part, all part of education, right? Like there, there are people who told me like, hey, you know, if mastery knew who you were, they wouldn't have hired you. Mm. Like there were people who told me that, right? Like, and, and maybe how I projected coming in was one way and you know people who knew me were like hey but your orientation i don't know if they really understood what you believed in and but so maybe that was part of strategy to get in and then say okay here's here's a, a way to do it i think jawanza kunjufu said you know years ago the fact that we live in a capitalistic society and we don't explicitly teach our children about capitalism and how capitalism is wielded against them is probably one of the biggest parts of being miseducated that we provide our children. And I, I think all of it ends up back to strategy and technique and how are we using these things to advance our um, the cause for our people. All right. Raymond. Oh, man. So I was going there's a couple of different directions I was going to go, but I'm going to keep it political. And so my final thoughts are I just saw 15 rounds of a vote in which a man was basically turned down and told, you're not good enough for this job. We do not want you for this job. And I know we talked before about, you know, prejudice and racism and like all these other things, but like, it's gotta be. I don't know what what, the, what kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, what kind of, cause like ain't no way in hell a black politician would have gotten 15 rounds to go back and forth with folks in terms of making concessions and do all these, doing all these other things in order to get a job that's third in line to be president of the United States. And so I'm just baffled at, at the fact that like I'm just th this whole this whole political process just baffles me and and I just see and know that there's gonna be two years 
that nothing, absolutely nothing is going to get done. The only thing that's going to be done uh, politically in the House for the next two years that, that could be guaranteed is a, a Hunter Biden expedition. That's it. So whatever you got for the past two years, be thankful for it. We'll try again in two more years. Uh, well, piggybacking off of that, we're in real trouble because uh, I think half of the country has lost its damn mind. And you can see it in the political expression that they're still um, they are still electing people to office that are not very serious people. The only thing that they're serious about is white supremacy. They are not serious about governing. They're not serious about systems. They're not serious about whether or not people can put food on the table. They're not serious about transportation, about kind of like, you know, aeronautical policies and NASA and whatever. The things that we need them for, like the the government, the governing a, a country and leading us forward, they're not serious about any of it. So this dude that just, you know, in this party, that particular party who just gets elected, George Santos, as a matter of fact, who has said that he's half black and Jewish and kind of Latino and was married to a woman, but is a out gay man and blah, 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 whatnot. Uh, he is the most kind of weird, fraudulent kind of candidate to make it all the way there. And there's been no call for him to really like resign. In my lifetime, we have gone from you can be asked to resign for 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 misspeaking a word or like you know howard dean when he was running for president made a, a sound into a microphone and that was enough to make him get out of the the presidential race and we've gone from that to now being able to lie about everything that you have ever said or done or whatnot and as long as when you get up to take the oath you do the white supremacy signal down here right as you're doing this up here you can be forgiven anything. You could be the biggest bozo on planet Earth. And that is an entire party right now. That's an entire out of two American parties, because we only have two that are actually operable. One of them is now characterized by what I just said. That means we're in real trouble and our kids are in real trouble. And that says a lot about white power because there is nothing that people of color could do to be this cartoonish, this ignorant, this stupid, this lying, this kind of buffoonish and still hold the power. We got to be like exemplars on our side of the fence. We got to be lawyers and, and doctors and blah, blah. And on their side of the fence, bruh, come on. Anyways, we got to educate our way out of this. We got to educate our kids. But this is where I'm hopeful. They hate everybody who's not white, straight, Christian male or people who want to be white, straight, Christian male. They hate everybody else. Then the everybody else movement is really big. That's a lot of people, right? So that's where my hope lies. My hope lies in the everybody else movement because they're dwindling in numbers and that's why they're acting the way that they're acting. That's why they're behaving the way that they're behaving is because they know that the browning of America is real. So they're trying to head off the browning of America. So I, I encourage everybody to join the everybody else movement and uh, let's form the everybody else party and let's go. Let's rock this thing out. Let's do it. Black, white, Puerto Rican, everybody just a freaking let's do this. All right. Y'all gonna join? Y'all gonna join? Anyways, this has been another episode of the Eight Black Hands. We thank y'all as always for joining us for another week. Appreciate you, brothers, for for joining wherever you are. Sharif is in an undisclosed location, which I'm not gonna say, but he's not at home, and he still made it to the show tonight. And I'm and not so there. And I'm not there. I'm not in the undisclosed location where he's at. You're not just there either. Just, just, no. pretend you, just pretend that you are, bro. Just pretend. Just pretend. That you are. And we have fans and, and family and, and others that support us or whatnot chiming in from all over the place, too. So we appreciate you all. As always, we'll see you next week on another episode of the Eight Black Hands.